Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 9 to 14 together. Revelation 21, 9 to 14. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word as together we acknowledge that God's Word is inspired and inerrant and the infallible Word, the Word of the true and living God. Listen now to the Scriptures. Revelation 21, 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke uh, spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. What, um, what do you think is the most beautiful city that you have ever, ever been in before? Or maybe a city that you long to be in, but you haven't. Now, I've traveled quite a bit. I'm not as well-traveled as some of you are, though I've, I've been to most of the continents except for Australia and Antarctica, obviously. Seen a lot of cities. Uh, I am not particularly inclined towards the modern cities, to be completely honest. Uh, Chicago is where Kelly and I actually fell in love. We had our first date in Chicago, so that city will always hold a special place in my heart. San Francisco has the Golden Gate Bridge, though it's changed a lot in recent times. I don't think I would want to go back to San Francisco. Just a personal opinion. Don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings if you like, if you like San Francisco. New York, the one thing I wanted to see was the Empire State Building, which that's the building that King Kong climbed in 1933, if you're familiar with that. So I saw that, and that's pretty nice. My hometown is always going to hold the place of my heart, for sure. I love Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. That's where I was born and raised, and I love it. But, but probably the, the most beautiful city that I've ever been to in my life, if I had to pick, if I had to pick, would be Edinburgh, Scotland. It is an amazing city. If you've ever been to Edinburgh, it is absolutely incomparable Edinburgh is ancient, and it's glorious, and I can't describe it to you, but it's got cathedrals everywhere. Many of the buildings are more than a thousand years old. There's churches that are important in terms of history. John Knox preached there. And then, of course, there is the Edinburgh Castle, which is one of the most amazing buildings, I think, that I've ever been to in my life. Edinburgh Castle is like something that you would see in the fairy tales. If you can close your eyes and imagine a castle in the fairy tales, that's Edinburgh Castle. It looks like something that King Arthur would have reigned from. It's just absolutely extraordinary. There are many cities that you might want to visit at some point in your life. Heaven, however, is described in this text, Revelation 21, as something like a great city. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of its architectural features as John begins to, uh, to describe them here. Now, when I say heaven, please understand, 
We're talking here in Revelation 21 and 22 of what John calls the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so I'm aware of that. We've spoken about that a little bit in the last, in the last couple of sermons here. And moreover, in Christian theology, we do insist that heaven is a real place. It is something that actually exists. When we say heaven in the Bible, we do not mean it like an adjective. So if I were to have before you today a, a glorious piece of chocolate cake and you said to me, this cake is heaven, I would say, okay, fine, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not using it as an adjective. If you jump in a warm, soft bed, and some of you probably will on this very cold Lord's Day today, and you said this bed feels like heaven, I get what you mean, but again, we who are believers, we are insisting that heaven is an actual place with real existence. You know, sometimes the Bible, when it speaks of heaven, it speaks of it in the plural, the heavens, not just ha-uranos, but tois urinois, heavens in the plural. And very often in biblical cosmology, the reason it speaks of it in the, in the plural is because sometimes we look up into the sky and we may think of that as the first heaven, and we may look past that to the sun, moon, and stars and, and think of that as the second heaven. But in the Bible, the third heaven is the place in which God himself dwells, and his holy angels are there giving glory and praise to him. And so it's with that in mind that we're talking about a real, literal place with dimension and existence. That's what we're talking about here this morning. Now, if you will please have your Bible open with me as we go through this text together, one of the first things that I want to simply observe is that John here in this passage, he gives us some imagery and illusions that we've already covered so far in this series. And so I am not going to labor to recover what I've preached on in previous sermons. I'm going to try to highlight the things that we have not yet done here in depth from this particular pulpit. But let me just for the sake of fidelity, I want to be fair too, mention some things that we have looked at before. For instance, in your Bible, look at uh, 21.9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride. Now, now we've met that angel. We've met these plagues that are already discussed, so we're, we have no intention to recover them. The one thing I want to mention to you is that there is almost an exact verbal parallel to this sentence. If you will flip back with me, go back with me to chapter 17 and look at verse 1 there. I just want you to notice this because I think I would be doing injustice if I didn't show you this. Look at 17.1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who seated on many waters. Now we can take those two sentences, we can line them up right next to each other, there is almost exact verbal parallelism between 17.1 and 21.9, except for one major feature in 17.1, he is showing us the prostitute in the harlots, okay? And in 21.9, now, the apparently the same angel or similar angel here is now showing us the bride. So that's pretty obvious here that we have a major contradistinction happening here where John is now describing the bride, that glorious bride, and he is clearly contrasting her who is beautiful and faithful to the Lord to her or she who is wicked and an abomination in his sight. So there's an obvious contrast taking place here. Okay, So, so we've observed that. Now, 
I'm not going to do too much bridal language because I did preach on the bride just a couple of weeks or so ago, so I'm going to refer you back to that sermon. But I also want to mention one other thing, just by way of review, that John here, as he's trying to describe the indescribable, he once again does describe what he says is the holy city of Jerusalem coming down, right? You see that? Coming down out of heaven from God. I just want to review here real quick. And I said this before, that the reason why heaven is described as descending to us is in itself a very picture of grace. You don't climb up to heaven by your works or by your effort. Heaven comes down to you by way of God's clemency and His mercies in Jesus Christ. That's why heaven is described as coming down to us. Because God shows us the mercy that we could not climb up and in any way earn in and of ourselves. So that's just a little review. Now, What I'd really like to do this morning is, again, to show you this kind of architecture as like a city that John is describing here. And so our approach this morning, the trajectory that we're going to use, is the same trajectory that John himself gives us here in this text. Namely, we're going to start off from a distance, viewing the city from a distance, as John does. And then, as it were, we're going to zoom in a little bit closer. You're going to see how he does that. And then we're going to zoom in all the way to the point that we're standing right up against the walls of the city. That's how John approaches this vision. So that's how we're going to approach it as well. So does that make sense? We're going to start from a distance and we're going to come in closer and closer until we're right up to the walls of the city. That's how John presents this vision. So with your Bible open and my Bible open, let's remark, first of all, this will be our point number one this morning, the radiance of the city. Notice its radiance. It is described to you in verse 10. And he carried me away. Who is he? Well, the angel that he just referred to. Okay, This angel carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now you may say to yourself, and I thought this too as I was studying this week, Why doesn't the angel just take him right into the city? Like, I want to know what heaven is like, and you want to know what heaven is like too, I imagine. Wouldn't it make sense if the angel would just take John straight into the city and just start describing the things that are in there? But that's not what the angel does. In fact, notably, what the angel does, first of all, is quite different. He takes him to what would seem to be a remote place. He takes him... And he sets him down on a high mountain, apparently at some distance from the city, so that John can visually apprehend the city from a distance. Now, why does the angel take him to the top of a mountain only to show him the city from a distance? Well, if you've been studying us with us throughout this whole series, this probably will not surprise you to know that this is yet another Old Testament allusion to an event that has already taken place and redemption history. Go with me, please. You're going to be, I think you're going to appreciate this. Go with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 34 in the Old Testament here, and I want to show you the literary reference that that we're working with here. I was surprised. I did not know this already. I, I discovered this happily this week in my study. So in Deuteronomy 34, we have something very similar happening here. What is it? Well, In Deuteronomy 34, the last of the book of Deuteronomy, before they go into the promised land in the book of Joshua, the Lord God himself takes Moses, and interestingly, what does he do? 
but he places him on top of a mountain to consider the promised land from a distance. Making sense? We tracking with this? So look at Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea and the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. And verse 4, the Lord God said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Now, why doesn't the Lord allow Moses to go into the promised land? Why not? Well, yes, because of his sin, because... As much as Moses was a good and brave and even very helpful leader to the people of Israel, yet there was something in his heart that the Lord saw, a moments of rebellion, a moments of unbelief, we might say. And so the Lord allowed Moses to see the promised land from a distance, but he was not permitted to go in. Okay? So why is John referring to this particular event in redemption history here? Well, because John now has the same privilege that Moses had standing on the top of Mount Pisgah. Namely, he gets to see the promised land from a distance with his eyes. Okay, And so to be able to even see the promised land, this is as much of a fulfillment as Moses himself is going to get of being able to enter into the promised land because God did not allow Moses to do so. Right? He held him back. And so at one hand, there's this promise in the fulfillment that yes, there is a promised land and your people are going into it, but at the same time, the Lord holds Moses back at abeyance and doesn't allow him personally to go in. So this actually serves as something of a comparison, but also a contrast to what John has seen because in John's case, he's enabled to see that yes, the promised land is real, heaven actually exists and your people are going to be permitted to go in but wherein is the contrast well the contrast is this that john is going to go into the promised land and so are you and i in christ and if you're feeling bad for moses don't feel too bad because moses got to enter the promised land that is greater than the promised land that makes sense So Moses was held back from that temporary promised land. But if you read the book of Joshua, there's a lot of conflict that's going to come there anyways. But John is seeing something that reminds us of the promised land in some way. But the promise meets a much greater fulfillment in the promised land that's greater than what Moses saw from the top of Mount Pisgah. That's what John is doing here in this particular vision. That's why he's describing it this way. This is why the angel shows him these things, to confirm the reality of the better promised land. Now, what does he see from a distance? We're, we're just kind of imagining that we're standing there too on the top of this mountain. What does he see? Well, look at verse 11. What's the first thing he remarks of about this heavenly city? Well, in, in verse 11, it says that the city has the glory of God. It's radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And so what does John see? Well, the first thing that strikes him is the city's radiance. It is a glow. Okay? 
Uh, it has a luminescence to it. It has a refulgence to it. It has a, a brilliance to the city. The, the city has some sort of illumination to it, as it were, that makes it seem as though it is a light. And so I'll, I'll ask you this. Look down at verse 11 again and tell me, why does the city have radiance? Why is it shining? And he gives some imagery here, like a jewel or like a jasper, clear as silver. What is it that's causing the city to have a brilliance to it? Do you see it in verse 11? What is it? The glory of God is its radiance. Exactly. Now, the word glory, let's just pause here. I want you to circle the word glory in your Bible. If you write in your Bible or make a little pencil annotation, it's an important word, glory. Yes? One of the most important words in the whole Bible. What is glory? Well, let's do a little etymology here. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word glory is the word kabod. You don't need to remember that, but it's true. Glory is the word kabod or kavod as it's variously pronounced. It literally means a weightiness, okay? It means weights or significance or heaviness. That's what the word glory means in the Old Testament. And the word heaviness or weightiness obviously points to significance, importance, or meaningfulness. So when we talk about the glory of the Lord... Okay, we're talking about something like his honor or his renown or his reputation is very heavy. It's weighty. It's significance. Okay, it's not light and fluffy. That would be an antonym. Okay, it's weighty and significant. That's why the Bible talks about his glory as being his renown. So, for instance, Psalm twenty nine two says, "Ascribe to the Lord the glory due." His name. Now you can ascribe it to him, but you can't give him glory because God is already intrinsically glorious. You can recognize his glory, you can speak of his glory, you can praise his glory, but you can't actually give him glory because he has all of it. Okay? There's none other going around that he doesn't already have. And yet, check this out. Sometimes in the in the in the Old Testament, the word kavod or kabod actually takes on this kind, of, uh, this kind of brilliant luminescence in which glory and light are very often spoken of in the same context. So listen to this. This is Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel seeing the glory of God here in this passage. It's an amazing passage. We don't have time to study it in whole, but listen. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. Okay. So when Ezekiel is seeing the glory, what is he seeing? He's seeing brilliant light. And it's so bright and so powerful and so overwhelming to the prophet that he says, I fell on my face. Okay. So in the Old Testament, we have this imagery of weightiness and brilliance or luminescence. Now in the New Testament, okay, Greek, not Hebrew, uh, we have the word doxa, which means glory. And when the Hebrew Old Testament is translated into the Greek, uh, they use the word doxa to translate the word kabod or kavod. And surprise, surprise, what do we have? Very same connotations in the Greek New Testament. In fact, whenever we sing the doxology, okay, in church, what are we singing? We're, we're literally singing Words of glory. That's what doxology means. Okay. 
So again, light and glory and majesty and significance. And, and here's why I bring all this up. Because glory, the glory of God is so important, it might even be the meta-theme of the whole Bible. Um, the whole of the Scripture is beckoning with us to recognize that there is no other glory but the glory of the Lord. Okay? That's why God says things like Isaiah 48, 11, my glory I will give, I will not give, rather, my glory I will not give to another. He won't share it. Now, uh, if you and I were to say that, that would be the height of narcissism. But when the Lord says, I will not share my glory with another, he is rightly appraising all glory and valuating it to be his own. And it's true. It's absolutely true. And yet that doesn't mean, though, that there won't be times and places and things that try to steal from the Lord the glory that he deserves. I'll give you one example. In the whole of Scripture, beckons us to recognize this reality. Remember when the devil was trying to tempt Christ in Matthew chapter 4, and he takes him up, and he, he takes him to a high place, and he shows him, what? The glories of this world. The glories of this world. And so there is this kind of tension that the believer is called out constantly to recognize that the only true, real glory to be found and to be savored in this world is that of the Lord himself. All other is mere pretension. Okay? And so when this city is described as this, this glorious, heavenly, glowing city of lights and praise and worth and honor and majesty and significance, uh, let me just tell it to you this way. There will be no rivals for God's majesty then. Okay? Um, though, there, though there are diminished, weak, flawed, superficial rivals to God's glory here in this life, there will be none then. There will be no room. No room for pride, no room for arrogance, and no room for anything but the shining brightness of the glory of God's love. Now, this is probably a good place to pause for a little application, don't you think? So we're talking about glory here. Uh, let's apply that to this church. What is the glory of Gospel Fellowship PCA? What is our glory? Uh, some of you say, well, well, the past. I met my spouse here. I grew up here. Been a good church. Uh, legacy pastors have preached here for a long time. Uh, our programs. We're known for CRP, that's true. Property's beautiful. Church is growing. Question, is any of that our glory, though? All oh, those things are blessings for sure. No question about that. Those things are all blessings. But the glory of the Lord must be always the proclamation of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have anything but that. Okay? The glory of gospel fellowship must be the same glory, the glory of God in Christ, that literally lights up the city of heaven with the refulgence of God's own brilliance. That has to be our glory here, too, in this church. Okay? Same thing true with your personal life as well. Now let's move on. So John zooms in now. Okay, he starts off seeing this glorious city of light, but look, but look at how he zooms in, in in verse 12. Notice now how the perspective is narrowing closer. It had a great high wall 
with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates of the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Okay, so here now we're looking at the architecture of heaven as it's described as a city. And uh, first thing we observe, walls. Big walls. Now, Pastor David's preaching next week. He may speak more about this. I don't know. Uh, But the walls come back into view in the next paragraph. All I can tell you for today is that these walls are very large and they're very thick. Okay? They are very high. In fact, uh, the, the, the distance here or the, the thickness of the wall is something like 216 feet thick. 144 cubits. Did the math for you. You're welcome. There you go. Why, is that, why are the walls so thick? My goodness. Well, because nobody, nobody can possibly climb over them or burrow underneath them or possibly cut their way through them. That is impossible. The only way into this place is through what? Not the walls, but what does he say next? The gates. Okay, now what's the purpose of a gate? Heaven has gates, apparently. What does a gate do? Well, a gate keeps some out, and it permits some to come in. That's why gates swing open and they close shut. As it turns out, as we as we studied the same passage a little bit later, if you skip down to verse 25, a couple weeks from now, we're going to look at this verse. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will never be night there. So these gates are apparently open. Now, probably this, we should refer back to Ezekiel chapter 48, our supplemental reading text this morning, because clearly there's another literary allusion here to the end of Ezekiel. The end of Ezekiel chapter 48 is describing the temple here, a temple that Ezekiel sees in chapters 40 through 48 by way of a vision. And what's similar in this passage is that we notice that a couple things here. First, four-sidedness. And secondly, that there's three gates on each direction, north, south, east, and west. And not only that, but each of these gates are named for the patriarchs of Israel. So that's a pretty obvious literary illusion here that John is working with from Ezekiel chapter 48. But please do notice the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. And if you don't have it open, let me just read it to you. The name of the city from that time on is the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Okay? A little, little parenthetical for you. Matthew Henry. You probably know him as being one of the great Bible commentators of all time. Matthew Henry, yes? Heard that name? Okay. Did you know that he died before he finished his Revelation commentary? Did you know that? And that when you read Matthew Henry's commentary on Revelation, what you're probably reading, there is, there is one. It's just that he didn't write it. So, so what happened is Matthew Henry's friends actually took his notes. He was intending to do the whole Bible, obviously. And Matthew Henry's friends actually cobbled together the notes from what they had that he left, and they used some of his other writings. And so they basically kind of stitched together a commentary on the book of Revelation from what what they thought, as his colleagues, Matthew Henry was probably going to say. No, uh, do we know exactly what he, would, what he would have said? Probably not. But whoever 
whoever wrote the Revelation commentary, I think got this exactly right here. And the commentators ask, why is it that there are gates on all four sides of the city? Why are there multiple gates on all four sides of the city? Now, now maybe you would say, and I hope you wouldn't, because I think this would be wrong, but you may say, well, maybe there's many ways into heaven. Is that a possibility? Maybe. That's what John is saying. There's many roads to heaven, many possibilities. I think that would be the least faithful way that you could possibly interpret this text. No question about that. That is not what this is saying. The Bible is very, very clear throughout the whole of Scripture that there is only one way into the heavenly glories, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, So, so that should be clear. But you know what the, the writers of Matthew Henry's commentary say? And I like this. They say that the reason why we have so many gates and, and openness from each angle is because this is a picture of God gathering in his elect from all of the four corners of the earth. And that's exactly the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that God would collect and he would bring in the elect from all over the earth, right? From north, from south, from east, and from west. That there's a picture here of the great ingathering of all of God's people, all of God's people throughout all of time, and they're all coming in. And notice here, again, we're going to come to this a little bit later. Uh, we're going to come into this, uh, this text a little bit later, but, but in verse 24 of the same chapter, it says this, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Again, it's not that they have intrinsic glory, but that they are recognizing the glory of Christ. And so the the gates of heaven, uh, they do not shut, apparently. And who are they open to? They are open to the saved. That's who they're open to. By the way, one other thing that's happening here, very interesting. Flip with me back to the book of Genesis. I want to show you something that I think is more than coincidental. Go with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The story of the fall. It turns out there might be something here that pertains to this text. Now remember, in Genesis 3, the context here is that Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. God has uh, judged them severely. In fact, God has placed an imprecation upon the serpents and upon the man and the woman and even the grounds. And though there's a massive hint of redemption here in Genesis 3.20 where God makes for Adam and Eve these garments of skin, which is a typological foreshadowing of Christ being our garments to cover us. Yet notice here this severe chastisement at the end of chapter 3 wherein the Lord God sends them out from the Garden of Eden. It specifically says in verse 24, He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree, uh, the way to the tree of life. Okay, so you see that? So Eden is blockaded off. Even the east gate, especially the east gate. And how is it blockaded off? Well, with the cherubim themselves, and they are equipped then in a soldier-like manner, with a flaming sword. 
and one can only picture what this would have looked like, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. By the way, uh, about which the tree of life? See future sermons. It's going to come up significantly. But here, remember, in our text, go back to Revelation 21, do we see angels at the gates? Yes or no? Yes, we do. Do we see them guarding the way with the sword, the flaming sword, so as to keep anyone out? No, we do not. Uh, the, the flaming sword of the cherubim has been removed, and the way is now open for the saved to enter in. And so that prompts me to ask, is that you? Are you one of the saved who are going to enter in? I certainly hope and trust. Now, finally, let's wrap up here. I do want to notice that John's vision pulls all the way in tight. Okay, so it's almost like a, it's almost like a camera zooming in here as we look at this. It starts off at quite a distance. It zooms up. It shows the walls and the gates. Now we're all the way up on the walls here. And thirdly, let's, let's observe its foundation. So John is, uh, as it would seem, standing right up against the walls, and he's looking down at the ground. Now look at verse 11. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So John is right up on the wall. And he's so close now that he can look down and he sees the foundation stones. And, and, and what does he see? Well, he sees the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, now you might think that this is backwards. Because wouldn't you think that logically it would make sense if the foundation was the patriarchs and the gates were the apostles. Wouldn't that make more sense? Because, like, think about it. The patriarchs came prior to the apostles in redemption history, and so there's a sense in which you could say that the apostles opened the gates through the preaching of the gospel built on the foundation that the patriarchs laid in the Old Testament. But that's exactly not what we see here. It's reversed. Why is that? Well, for one, because it's got to match Ezekiel's vision, which we already, we already uh, referred to that literary illusion. But secondly of all, and remember this, this is very important, that in the scriptures, it is the doctrine and the teaching of the apostles that is considered to be the foundation of the church itself. See the book of Ephesians for that. Okay? With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, so says Paul. Not only that, and more to that same point, but Jesus is constantly bidding us to be sure that we are building our lives on the solid foundation. Didn't he say that in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes. And so herein, even in this vision of, of heaven in the book of Revelation, we have yet another reminder that the foundational stones upon which you and I are standing is the same truth that the apostles preached so long ago. There's no change. Okay. The foundational doctrine of the apostles is still the foundation of the church. And you may say, well, why does heaven need such a strong foundation given that there will be no earthquakes or tremors or storms to shake the castle then? Well, that's true. There will be no threats to shake the heavenly city, but there are certainly threats here. There are certainly threats here. 
There are shifting times in this world. There are shifting ideologies. There are the tremors of history. There are the personal disasters that befall us. There are innumerable interpersonal strifes that we all experience. There's a, there's a lot of hardship in this world. And let me, let me just put it to you this way as clearly as I can. If you are not standing on the foundation now, what hope will you have to stand on the foundation then? This would probably be a pretty good time, wouldn't it? To think about the foundation of your life. Um, even as the foundation is exactly the same. Uh, there is no shifting sands for us in Christianity. We stand upon solid truth. Now let me just dwell on that for one minute. Okay? What is Christianity to you? What is your faith to you? Is it A, something like a weather vane on the top of the building, which is constantly subject to the, the stirring and direction-changing winds of the culture all around us? Is that what your faith is to you? I hope not. Okay. Weather vane's a helpful thing. If you want to put one on your house, fine. It'll be very helpful to you to tell you which direction the wind is blowing. But you don't need a weather vane when the storm comes. Okay, the weather vane will be the first thing that's ripped off your house when the storm comes. The, the weather vane will end up three miles down the road in your neighbor's yard. What you need is not something indicating which directions the winds are blowing. What you need in your life as a Christian believer is you need more than anything a solid foundation. Okay? You need this foundation now. And if you happen to be looking at your life today, okay, in this first month of 2024, and you realize, like, my life is falling apart, my relationships are falling apart, uh, my vocation seems to be going nowhere, my guilt and my shame and my fears are fracturing me every single day. I feel like there's tremors constantly, like I'm literally standing upon a fault line of history and I have no idea what it's going to do to me. If that's you today, then my goodness, you need to be absolutely sure that you are standing on the rock-solid foundation of Christian teaching. This is not, we are not playing around. This is not a weather vane to us, our Christian faith. Our faith to us is dead serious, and it is as solid as a stone foundation. When John sees heaven from a distance, he sees glory. And when he comes up close, he realizes that he's already standing on the solid foundation of the teaching of the apostles. May we stand so solidly today as well. Would you